Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, we change gears. We've been speaking with Ambassador Bolton and Congressman Davidson from Ohio. And now, and Lisa Bramwitz has been so good about this, we speak of an allied response. We've heard many defenses of the permanence and need for NATO. We are now joined by the Secretary General. Of course, his affiliation with his Norway, Jens Stoltenberg, joins us this morning. Jens, what should be NATO policy after America exits from Afghanistan? First of all, to stay committed to uh, uh, to ensure that Afghanistan doesn't once again become a safe haven for international terrorists. Because we have to remember that the reason why NATO allies joined the United States uh, going into Afghanistan uh, in 2001 uh, was uh, a direct response to a terrorist attack, uh, attack on the United States. And hundreds of thousands of uh, Canadian, uh, European, NATO soldiers and partners have served alongside U.S. soldiers there for 20 years. And, and for those 20 years, we have prevented Afghanistan from being a safe haven for international terrorists. So we need to ensure uh, that that's also the case uh, in the future. So, uh, uh, so we will... We will follow and monitor uh, the, mm-hmm. the new rulers in Kabul very closely, and we will also make it clear that uh, uh, NATO allies have the capabilities to strike from long distance right. terrorist groups if they uh, try to re-establish themselves uh, in Afghanistan. Because of the time constraint this morning, Secretary General, I really want to focus on uh, the important resolute support mission, the idea of the Italians in the west of Afghanistan, the Germans up north where the Northern Alliance is. And then there's a Turkish flag in the middle providing support, NATO support, to Afghanistan. Now Turkey is in a unique position. Explain NATO's relationship with Mr. Erdogan and the new Afghanistan. So NATO has ended its military presence in Afghanistan, as the United States has. Uh, and I would like to thank and praise and, and, and commend all those uh, men and women who have served there for so many years. And their efforts and their service was not in vain. Turkey is, um, has played a key role in, uh, in operating the airport, and, uh, and Turkey has offered uh, to continue to support uh, the, the airport. And, and the airport is in Kabul is vital, is a vital link uh, to the world uh, to get humanitarian aid in, but also to uh, enable safe passage for those who want to leave. And NATO allies. Uh, I have strongly stated that we will not forget all those who are still in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. who supported us, who are at risk, and we will continue to work to, to ensure that they can leave uh, Afghanistan. Will that mean NATO's support directly on the many adjacent borders of Afghanistan to continue to get people out so NATO allies are, first of all, working on uh, how to uh, make sure that the airport can uh, continue to operate. Uh, second, uh, we expect the Taliban to live up to their commitments, uh, both on safe passage, but also on open land borders, uh, and of course also uh, what they have promised when it comes to uh, 
preventing terrorist organizations uh, being able to reconstitute mm -hmm. themselves uh, in Afghanistan. If you're just joining us on radio and television, Jens Stoltenberg with us, the former Prime Minister of Norway, Secretary General of NATO. We're honored that he could join us on this historic morning. Mr. Secretary General, NATO is not so much in search of a mission, but it is a morph. It is a changeable Europe, a changeable NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization as we move into 2022. All of that buttressed up against a question of migration, a question of refugees across uh, Europe. I would suggest this is the third rail. How can NATO support its nations in continental Europe confronting a new round of mass refugees and migration? Our main task is to help to stabilize our uh, neighborhood. Uh, and that's the reason why we are uh, working with partners in North Africa, in the Middle East, uh, to help to uh, stabilize countries uh, uh, in our neighborhood, because when our neighbors are more, uh, more stable, we are more uh, secure. We also have uh, some presence, for instance, in the Aegean, where we help to implement the agreement between Turkey and the European Union on illegal migration over the Aegean uh, Sea from, uh, from Turkey into the rest of, uh, of uh, uh, Europe. But the NATO's <clears throat> main purpose is to make sure that we stand together, 30 allies, mm -hmm. uh, uh, one for all and all for one. This is important for Europe, but it's also important for the United States. Uh, in a world with uh, uh, a shifting global balance of power with the rise of China, it is a huge advantage for the United States to have 29 friends and allies in NATO. No other major power has anything like that. And therefore, a strong NATO, Europe and North America standing together is mm -hmm. important both for North America and for Europe. How can NATO assist your members in what we're hearing interview to interview? General Kimmett of the United States, Ambassador Bolton, Congressman Davidson and others, they all circle back to a relationship of a new Afghanistan with China and with Russia. How can NATO respond to that perceived new alliance? So for us, it's obvious that uh, uh, all the countries in the region, uh, and that of course also includes China and neighbor Afghanistan and uh, Russia not so far away, it is in their interest uh, to have a stable uh, Afghanistan, an Afghanistan where terrorist groups like ISIS-K uh, cannot uh, work, uh, mm -hmm. establish themselves, operate, plan <clears throat> terrorist attacks against uh, uh, any other country. So uh, there are many differences uh, between uh, Russia, China, NATO, allies and other re countries in the region, but we all have a common interest in uh, preventing uh, right. Afghanistan from once again, as it was before we went in in 2001, uh, uh, becoming a place where terrorist organizations can plan, organize, conduct terrorist right. attacks against uh, other countries. Uh, Mr. Secretary General, Angela Merkel of Germany speaks of an existential need to have a Kabul airport open. You mentioned it earlier. I'd like in our final moments here to speak about the new Kabul airport. How do you perceive, and you mentioned Turkey and their affiliation of protecting and sustaining it over the years of this war, how do you perceive a new Kabul airport with NATO support? NATO allies are uh, strongly supporting uh, the efforts to, to make sure that we have a, a functional uh, uh, operational airport in uh, Kabul. Uh, 
um, uh, Turkey is playing a key role. Uh, I discussed this uh, uh, just yesterday with uh, with the Turkish foreign minister, and I would like to praise Turkey for the key role, both in uh, supporting, helping, uh, facilitating the evacuation, getting people uh, out uh, from Kabul, out from Afghanistan, into the airport over the last days, but also now uh, the offer they have made to help to operate the airport. Uh, because the airport is so essential, uh, both for aid coming in, but also for people to be able mm -hmm. uh, to leave. But the, how will we affect that? I mean, America sits stunned over what occurred yesterday. We all knew it was coming, and yet particularly those of us with an understanding of 1975 are stunned. How do we actually affect a reopening with the Taliban? As we work, as NATO is not planning to deploy any uh, forces or personnel at Kabul airport. Uh, we have ended our military presence there as uh, as uh, as uh, as an alliance and as, for instance, uh, uh, allies like, like the United States have done. But we are working with other countries, uh, including a NATO ally, Qatar, uh, uh, and they have what I will call operational contacts with uh, Taliban. Uh, to see if we can help uh, ensuring that, uh, the the, uh, that the airport continues to, uh, to function. Mr. Secretary General, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg this morning. Jens Stoltenberg, NATO Secretary General on this historic morning. We now finish whatever your politics is with John Bolton. He is a former national security advisor. The book, A Sensation a Year Ago, The Room Where It Happened, and we're thrilled that Ambassador Bolton could join us this, uh, this morning. I'm not going to mince words, Ambassador Bolton. You are scathing about the urgency and the magnitude of the Pakistan problem. How should the Secretary of State advise a president on our new relationship with Pakistan? Well, I think uh, for many years we've been constrained by our concern for Pakistani logistical support uh, to our forces in Afghanistan and our concern about Pakistan's nuclear weapons, which if they fell into the hands of terrorists one by one or if, worst case, a terrorist regime took over Pakistan would be a global threat immediately. Uh, but the fact is we've been played by the government of Pakistan for a long time, uh, terrorist uh, elements within that government already, particularly inner services intelligence, uh, have played a double game, and, and we've put up with it. I, I just think with the end of uh, uh, American involvement in Afghanistan, with a terrorist government in place there now, which gives uh, potential support for terrorist activity and takeover of Pakistan, we've just got to get tough uh, on right. the government either to crack down on terrorism or to face the consequences. To me, the critical sentence in your wonderful essay in the Washington Post, John Bolton, was you say, now we tilt to India. Let's take it back to John Galbraith, as ambassador to India long ago and far away. We've always been struggling with this tilt to India. How do we tilt to India now to assist the memory of our soldiers in Afghanistan? Well, the, the principal threat that we face globally in the 21st century is China, and uh, <clears throat> India has moved away a long way from the so-called neutrality of the Cold War, where it actually tilted toward the Soviet Union. 
which was one reason we tilted toward Pakistan. I mean, right. it kind of goes back and forth. But but India now sees China as the threat, and it sees the same thing we see in Pakistan: a, a large and growing Chinese presence, a Chinese assistance to Pakistan over the years for its nuclear and ballistic missile programs. Uh, and I, I think the time is uh, is here for the U.S. to tighten up with with India, with Australia, with Japan, which we already formed what we call the Quad with, uh, and and to really to put to Pakistan as clearly as we can, give up this flirtation uh, with terrorism. And uh, if you do, there's a, there's a real prospect for cooperation, well, but we're not going to go on any longer pretending you're not doing it. There's always been a struggle here institutionally within our international relations with India. What form of relationship would you advocate after your travels to Central Asia? Does Biden need to go to Delhi now? Well, I think he needs to go soon, and I think uh, we, we've got some real issues with India too. This is not this is not going to be easy. They've got to break their dependence on Russian weapon systems, which they've relied on and purchased for decades, uh, going back to the Cold War. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of the the uh, political class in India is going to have to wake up to the fact that uh, neutrality, which was never really neutral during the Cold War, is no longer an option. I think they're beginning to move in that direction. I think uh, there's a lot of opportunity there, but I don't underestimate the amount of work that's going to be involved. Ambassador Bolton, how concerned are you about some sort of alliance between the Taliban and uh, Islamic State or other groups that could become something reminiscent of the al-Qaeda of yore? Well, I think I, I think it's an important question. I think we should first remember the Al Qaeda of your is the Al Qaeda of today as well, and they have remained in close touch with Taliban during 20 years of exile in Pakistan. They're back in force now. We see that even in UN reports before the fall of the Afghan government. Uh, ISIS K has been at odds with. Uh, Taliban because they don't think they're tough enough. They, they think they're insufficiently strict in the implementation of uh, of Islamic law. So uh, so there's there's tension there now. But but let's be clear. This could turn into cooperation in the blink of an eye. And ISIS K does have worldwide threat capabilities, as does Al Qaeda. And I'm worried we have slipped back into a pre 9 11 uh, situation. Meanwhile, we do have reports that there are a number of American citizens still in Afghanistan uh, and the U.S. has completely pulled out. What do you see as the best pathway to get some of these people who are remaining out of the nation safely? I mean, especially uh, whose alliance are we going to rely upon? Well, I'm I'm very worried that that they're not coming out. Let let's remember a lot of these US citizens may well be dual citizen US and Afghan or they may have been Afghan and and become US citizens. So from uh, Taliban's perspective, uh, they're still Afghans and uh, I I I would not uh uh rest any uh, comfort in cooperating with Taliban, that we may get a few more people out who are American citizens. I, I think the number of Afghans who worked with us and other coalition forces for the last 20 years are going to be few and far between getting out. I, I, think, I think we're at real risk here of a long, uh, brutal hostage situation. Did we do the right thing? We left, and we left those people behind, and we knowingly did it. We, we never should have left. I think that's the fundamental mistake. I think the exit itself was badly bungled. No question about that. But the mistake here goes back to the Trump administration negotiating with the Taliban, not negotiating with a terrorist group, not negotiating with the government 
of Afghanistan mm-hmm. that we helped create 20 years ago and that whatever its deficiencies, and it had plenty, it had at least some democratic legitimacy, of which the Taliban has zero. Yeah, certainly complicated. Can you come back and just do big picture with us? A lot of the concerns about the way in which we withdrew has been China now stepping in. The Belt and Road Initiative, as you know, through Pakistan, you wonder if it continues through Afghanistan. Is that a real threat? Yes, I think it is. In fact, I have an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today on the reaction both by China and Russia to what we've done in Afghanistan. And I think while we're all uh, understandably concentrating on what's gone wrong in Afghanistan, what's the global terrorist threat as a consequence, if you look at the big picture, our main adversaries read this as a sign of American retreat, retreat and weakness. John Bolton, you came out of Baltimore. Your father was a fireman. You did the military academy thing and wandered up to the liberal swamp known as New Haven, Connecticut. And, you know, it must have been a real shock your first day at at, at Yale University. You did pretty good up there as well. You've got a great perspective on the international relations establishment of Washington Are we in search of an operative theory? We went from the civilizations, the Washington Consensus, maybe Zakaria's post-American world. What does John Bolton's new foreign policy theory look like? Well, you know, I'm a Burkean conservative, so I'm, I'm not, not, so, uh, not, not so interested in, uh, in broad-scale theorizing. But I think American foreign policy has to be based on American national interest, which is why we were in Afghanistan. Not, not, we weren't there to do charity work for the Afghans. We were there as a strategic defense against the recurrence of terrorism like we saw on 9-11. And I think when we give up that very hard-headed approach, uh, we leave American danger, which is uh, exactly where I think we are today. Meanwhile, we are hearing the administration is turning its focus much more to the Far East and to cybersecurity, to cyber warfare, to the protection uh, that could come from space and other types of fronts for the new war. What do you foresee in terms of the U.S.'s priorities and how it should chart uh, a path in that direction? Well, I think uh, cyberspace uh, has been a kind of a garden of Eden for many people for 20 years or so. We now realize it's uh, filled with dangers. Uh, As I said before, I do think China is the main threat, the existential threat of the 21st century. But but I think what's most important to understand is with with the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the Soviet Union, although people had this dream of the peace dividend and whatnot, actually in the past 30 years the world is more dangerous from more diverse threats that we've got to be ready for. It's not with Afghanistan gone, we're, we're more secure. The, the clear point today is we are less secure and we need to be ready across a multiplicity yeah. of, of threats. Ambassador Bolton, thank you so much. Writing in the Wall Street Journal this morning, and we thank him for his conversation. He watches the Euro on an hour-by-hour basis. Ibrahim Rabari, Citigroup Global Head of Foreign Exchange Analysis, but much more than foreign exchange, folding in the sum of all its part. How correlated are the markets right now, Ibrahim? Well, they remain pretty correlated. Uh, And in fact, when we look at the FX market, uh, one of the major cues we, of course, always take is what happens in, in, in interest rates and what happens in terms of global risk appetite. Uh, and FX has been moving more or less in tandem. That being said, for the dollar specifically, it means that it's been caught in the cross currents to a degree. As you said, it's been a little 
little range bound over the last few weeks because interest rates in the U.S. have been low, even as equity markets have been pushing up. So it raises, uh, Ibrahim, the economic question. What could potentially push the Fed to act more quickly and thus to create some strength in the dollar that could disrupt the rest of the FX world? What are you looking for in this Friday's jobs report on that front? Well, I think when it comes to the Fed, they're actually uh, drivers that matter a lot and drivers that matter much less. And I think the tapering question is much more in the latter category. And that was the main takeaway coming out of Jackson Hole. And therefore, we don't think there's all that much that this payroll report can do for the directionality of the dollar beyond the day itself. What is much more important is what is the outlook for the Fed's uh, price uh, hiking intentions. And there, I don't think this payroll report will uh, do a great deal. So I think it'll be a time until the Fed becomes the major market driver again in FX. That's fascinating, Ibrahim, especially when we take a look at what's happening over in Europe with the inflation print that we saw this morning coming in at the hottest since 2011, hotter than people previously expected. How much does this actually bleed into the potential for dollar strength, euro weakness, as you start to look at inflation really pick up and perhaps people recognize that in the FX world? Yes, there are, uh, I guess, two, two interesting observations here. One is, as you said, inflation in, in Europe has, has crept high, uh, much higher in a way that few of us had expected. And I think that puts a spotlight on to what the ECB may do at their next meeting uh, just over a week from now, because they themselves have to consider whether to taper asset purchases. And our, our expectation has been that they'll be very slow in indicating that. But I think this inflation print could, in fact, uh, increase the urgency for them to prepare to wind down their asset purchase program. And that in turn, it's not so much a, a euro negative factor, but it could actually suggest that there's a bit more upside linked to central bank expectations uh, from the ECB's outlook in the coming weeks. We also saw China PMIs weakening just a little bit overnight, and I'm curious how that impacts our inflation if they are exporting it and we are importing it. Is it indeed transitory? So I think uh, China is, in fact, or global growth more generally is, in fact, right now the key question for, for FX. It's to some degree the debate between reflation versus stagflation. And what we got out of the China PMIs was that maybe the manufacturing part uh, held up, and that tends to be the more important between the two. But what was striking was that non-manufacturing was extremely weak relative to expectations and relative to the previous trend. So it does raise some warning signs, but they're actually not necessarily inflationary uh, to the degree that demand in China is falling back in line with some of the supply restrictions. We don't think that it fuels necessarily <laughs> inflationary impulses that we're seeing elsewhere. But it does leave that uh, major question open, which right. is where does global growth go from here? And the one thing we know is that the dollar tends to strengthen when global growth weakens. So that, I think, is the the key scenario under which the dollar strengthens in the coming months. Abraham, in our collective memories, there are emerging market crises, Ecuador, Mexico, on and on. Do you feel like we're near great instability within selected emerging markets, or is it steady as she goes, given the information flow? So, so for now, we think that the risks in emerging markets are more idiosyncratic than systemic. And that's in the context of expecting that the global recovery will persist, that Chinese growth will bottom out and do okay. But this is one area where eventually Fed policy and interest rates could matter a great deal. Uh, the IMF chief economist just highlighted that the other day, that emerging markets are not in a position where they can weather a major increase in U.S. interest rates well. For now, it's reassuring to see that U.S. interest rates are 
are really subdued. And under that scenario, we think that emerging markets will, in fact, be an interesting investing opportunity, including in FX. But again, it is with, with uh, a bit of stomachache because we're all a little confounded by how low interest rates in the US are. And if that changes, I think it could make the likelihood of more common <clears throat> emerging market crises uh, a lot more, a lot more uh, likely. Imran Mubari, thank you so much for joining us today with Citigroup. Kathy Jones joins us right now, Schwab Center for Financial Research here on the oddities of the bond market. Kathy, the wall of money out there is tangible. What do you advise to savers exhausted from low nominal yields in non-existent real yields? Yeah, Tom, uh, you know, I think the key is that you need a pretty diversified portfolio. So, uh, you know, clearly you're not going to get much return in traditional <coughs> treasuries. And so you need a fairly diversified portfolio, but yields are low. And that, that reflects, as you mentioned, uh, with tremendous liquidity in the markets, sort of secular forces that continue to pour money into high quality bonds. And um, that's probably not going to change. So you need to really have a lot of diversification to deal with it. Kathy, can you put into perspective the discussions of tapering bond stimulus that we're hearing both from the Federal Reserve and now also from the ECB? I mean, will there be a material effect that just hasn't come through yet on bond yields moving higher as the, uh, the taper plans get effectuated? Well, I, you know, my feeling on tapering is the slower they go, the higher the yield. So the reason is, of course, because tapering is kind of the first step towards tightening policy and reducing liquidity and slowing growth and aggregate demand and inflation. So if the Fed takes a very slow approach, that allows longer term um, expectations about inflation and growth to stay higher. So if we move slowly, I think yields move up. If the Fed moves very quickly, and certainly if Germany starts or the ECB um, starts to taper quickly and clamp down on this uh, uh, on the stimulus, then we're probably going to see yields stay lower longer term. This is really confusing. And frankly, the whole backdrop of the what could be's and what may be's have been uh, basically a soup out there, which is possibly why the market hasn't done all that much. And I'm wondering why, if what you're saying is the case, that there is this faith that the Federal Reserve is going to remain on hold for longer, why aren't we seeing a steepening of the yield curve? Why aren't we seeing longer high, uh, longer term high inflation reads? We're just not seeing it in the markets. Does this make sense to you? Um, well, I think yields should be higher. I mean, I think uh, reflecting the growth we have, particularly from fiscal stimulus, less about the Fed, but more about fiscal stimulus, which has been really pretty powerful so far and has the potential, I think, to continue to keep the economy pretty strong. And uh, we have enough income growth, particularly in the lower um, income cohorts, that we should start to see aggregate demand pick up relative to supply and, and for a longer term prospects keep inflation a bit higher and real yields a bit higher. I don't think the market is quite convinced that that's going to happen. You know, we have a 20-year history of the Fed missing their inflation targets mm -hmm. of, of, of the economy not you know, coming into its full potential growth. And I think the market is skeptical about that. And the same time, just have tremendous demand. You know, there's just a lot of demand for yield out there. And the lesson a lot of institutional investors have learned is that you just take every opportunity when yields flip up to, to put money to work. 
Exactly. That's increasingly what we've heard from Matt Brill, even of Invesco, saying that the Goliath sitting on yield, it might not be the Fed. It's some of the foreign overseas buyers where you wake up every morning and Japan wants to be buying your bonds. Do you see that changing anytime soon? I doubt that it changes a lot. Um, it can it ebbs and flows over time. You know, you have seasonal factors, and you have kind of sudden moves. Maybe make foreign investors pull back, but you still look at those yield spreads, whether in nominal or even in real terms. Well, in real terms, ours are low, but in nominal terms, which is what people trade in the short run, um, you still have a big gap between where we are and where Japan is or where Europe mm -hmm. is. And if you're an institutional investor, you know, if you're a pension fund insurance company, you have money that has to go to work, has to be in a high quality asset, where do you go? Is that what you also see as you migrate away from full faith and credit to investment grade spreads? I'm looking at the Bloomberg 88 basis points over treasuries, high yield 288. The minute you got above 300, the buyers came in. Yeah, I think there is a fundamental story here. Um, I think the yields are extraordinarily low, obviously, but the fundamental story is that we have strong enough growth, good cash flow at corporations. You know, you have um, manageable levels of debt for most companies. And so, you know, again, yeah. that yield is really strong. And Kathy, Lizanne Saunders yesterday aged. The stock market was going up so fast. She's never seen that in her career. How do you handle the wall of money? I mean, can we revisit those super low yields, like breakdown under 116, breakdown under 12, price up, yield down? Can that happen with this wall of money? Well, I think it's possible, but I think we need some bad economic news to make it happen. So we yeah, okay. we visited those lows when you know there was a a, a big scare. Um, I think we need another pretty big scare, and it just doesn't seem, at least for the next six months or so, to be on the horizon. We're looking at pretty strong job growth. We're looking, despite the Delta variant, the economy continues to run at a pretty healthy rate. Um, and I, I don't think revisiting 112, 115 is very likely. There's also a question about long term, whether the Fed is going to be too slow and we do get faster than expected inflation. And this is almost sacrilegious to say, especially to someone who's been in the bond market year after year and watched the yields just go lower and inflation go nowhere. But Raghuram Rajan of the University of Chicago and formerly the Bank of India really uh, illuminated this yesterday on Bloomberg Television saying, look, the Fed is going to remain on hold, but we are seeing movement. It is a different world based on fiscal support. What do you say to the argument? like that? Um, I, you know, I, I tend to agree that um, the fiscal support is the most important. Whether the Fed finds itself so far behind the um, curve that they have to ratchet up rates really fast is kind of a question mark in my mind because they can, they have the ability to, you know, taper more quickly, taper more slowly, uh, raise rates more quickly. Um, I think it's premature to say that they're going to get behind the curve. Uh, it's a risk, clearly, uh, and I think fiscal stimulus is the big game changer in this market versus really the past 30, 40 years. Uh, we haven't had this kind of fiscal support for the economy in a very long time, and monetary policy isn't set for that, but I do think it's on the radar of the Fed. On that tone of the fiscal policy, you get sort of this idea within the equity markets of this reflationary trade. And Kathy, we joke that every equity analyst is, well, now also a bond analyst and a bond strategist. What are the equity guys next to you 
asking you? What information do they want about your world of bonds? Yeah, they just want to know what the Fed's going to do. Um, <laughs> that That's really always the question, you know. How... Oh, I got some shade there. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. it's, it's obviously it's important. The discount rate for equities is set by the risk-free rate, which is set for the Fed. So it's a logical question. I think there is some concern uh, amongst equity strategists that we're not seeing yield move up as quickly as inflation. And they're sort of like everyone else, kind of scratching their heads and saying, is this going to you know, come out and bite us uh, in the short run? Uh, and so they're on they're, they're on watch yeah. for that. But, but we're not hearing much more than you know, focus on the Fed. Kathy, a completely unfair question, but for the retirees of America crushed is savers. When do we see a positive real yield? Do you need to go into 2023 or 24? Probably. Yeah, I, I think it's going to wow. take some time. Um, now, on the other hand, if a if a retiree and a saver has a balanced portfolio, they're uh, getting a lot of appreciation on the equity side. Yeah. So let's not forget, yeah. if you're hoping for higher yields, it may have some sort of well, effect. Hold on, on a second. But Kathy, the implication there then being if somebody has a balanced portfolio and it's a good balanced portfolio, does this mean that bonds can still serve as sort of the buffer? I mean, this has been this perennial question before we let you go. Do they serve as that buffer or no? I, I think they do. I, I, I reject the argument. <laughs> I've rejected that argument for a long time. They're still there when the stock market really goes south. I just looked here. I'm looking up right now, Lisa, carefully balanced portfolio to see what that return has been. Kathy Jones, thank you so much. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.